We are so glad that you joined us here this evening. Thanks for being here. Take your Bibles and join me in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If you came walking in this evening and you did not grab some of the notes, not to scare you, but you may want to grab them. There's only 10 points this evening. And to be frank, that's only half of the sermon this evening. So uh, those of you who come midnight, you are still watching at home. Um, if we see you pass out or people here, we'll just keep on praying, preaching, and get through this material. I want to start with Revelation chapter 1. As we are doing a series, uh, before I read the section of Scripture, let me just set up our scene for this. Several have asked, okay, when you're doing this series, how are you going to approach it? I'm not going to do this one in, an, uh, in the typical expository way of going right through a book like we did Colossians, the book of Job. Uh, what we did with the life of Christ through the four Gospels and took us three years to get through that. And what I'm going to do, this one is going to be more of a doctrinal study and we're going to do more of a topical study. This evening I want to focus more on Revelation chapter 1 just as we get the foundation. But then what we're going to do from week to week is answer questions like we did this morning. Just We used one text, but some of the questions are going to be from a variety of texts. But tonight I want to be focusing in on most of this chapter. So follow along as I begin starting to read in Revelation chapter Chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen, it's true. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and he lists the churches as he goes through all of them. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head, his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and of death. Wonderful passage. Tremendous passage, passage that we should be looking at, we should be reading and be challenged. A passage that a gentleman by the name of Brother Milton, let's call him. He was pastoring in Ohio, and as he was pastoring in the, in the middle of that latter part of the 1800s, 
He was visited one day by the denominational president of the college that was nearby. And they got into a conversation. And Brother Milton made comment to this president of the college. He said, he said, you know, I don't think anything new will ever be invented. Everything that has been invented, that could be invented, has already been invented. The college president says, oh, no, I disagree with you. I bet that in 50 years, people are going to be flying all over. Well, Brother Milton was offended by that. He was appalled by that. He said, you speak blasphemy. If God wanted men to fly, he would have given them. Right. And he said, and you're, you're saying that God is going to give men the ability of angels? This is blasphemous. Brother Milton raised two boys. You know them. Okay. You've heard about the Wright brothers. Good thing they didn't listen to their dad. Okay, that they expanded and went further. When it comes to predicting what the future holds, there's a lot of people who get it wrong. There's a survey that was done not too long ago. It was more, about 15 years ago. And they asked some of the Americans, what do they think? Do you believe Jesus will return one day? I was surprised that as many as they did said yes. But there's still a good number that were uncertain about that. When they asked the question, do you believe there's an Antichrist someday? Less than half the people believe in such a character. When they ask the question, do you believe God will put an end to history and human society as we know it? Even less said yes. They think things will just continue as they always were. Do you, do you have an idea that a God-induced end will occur in the next few decades? Well, only 20% believe that God's going to intervene and put an end to the way things are going. There's a lot of confusion out there when it comes to understanding what the future holds. And we, of all people, better get it right. We have to understand what does the future hold. It'll have tremendous impact of what we do, how we operate. It, for the sake of our kids and grandkids, we've got to understand what the future is all about so that we can encourage them, we can help them, we can guide them. For the sake of getting out the gospel, if, if we don't understand what the future holds, we lose all incentive for continuing a mission's emphasis. For the sake of ministering to widows and widowers, those who have lost loved ones, we better understand what the future holds or we aren't going to be able to minister to them effectively. When it comes to our own personal growth, we are supposed to understand what the future holds. And so we're embarking on this idea that we need to study end times. And in Revelation chapter 1, and this is a, a topical idea tonight that we're going to just jump into Revelations for one or two points and then other places and come back to the book of Revelation. But in that first couple of verses, verse 3 in particular, it gives us one reason why we should embark upon this study. Though we've done it frequently, in the, since the year 2000, I've done five different series on end times. This is the, the last one I mentioned this morning, I had done in 2015, here on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Why should we do it? Number one reason in Revelation chapter 1, we're going down to verse 3, is God guarantees blessings to those who spend time studying and reading about prophecy. He says in verse 3, as you read it already, Blessed is he that reads, they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. And so we look and we understand blessed is the idea of peace, happiness, contentment, stability in the midst of COVID would be the idea. Being able to endure, to handle trials. Is he the one who reads? Now that could be the person up front who at the time that the letters are delivered, he's the only one with the, with the manuscript, he's reading. And so that's probably the original concept of it. But we understand our reading as well is very important. And then he expands it. Those who hear. Not just sit here and listen, but they understand it. And then he goes a little bit further. Those who pay attention. 
who then take it and make application with it. And then he wraps up with that idea that you and I are going to be blessed if we take time for doing this, but it's more than just hearing it, just being exposed to it. It has the idea that we need to do something with what we're learning. So there's special blessings. That's one reason why we should take the time to do it. That we should take time to go into it in depth. Let's do a second reason from this very passage. But the idea that blessed is those are those who hear it implies and teaches this truth. That prophecy can be understood by any believer. In this age today, we have a better ability to study and understand prophecy than any other age. He said that comment when he says it's written under the servants, verses 1 that we looked at this morning, and verse 3, blessed are they that hear that understand. And we know that this is no limit as we understand in reading chapters 2 and 3 when he describes the seven churches that first got the letter. There's no limitations as far as what he's talking about. He's including the male, the female, the rich, the poor. He mentions the old. He mentions the young in those, chap- in those chapters and about those churches. He talks about those who are struggling, those who are standing firm. So he's saying all of those in the church the multiple seven churches, all of those different types of people like all of us, we can understand this better than any other age. It wasn't that way in the past. In the past, not everybody could understand. If you remember the book of Daniel, when he's closing out prophecy, he writes this, I understood not, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up sealed up until the end. But when you read the end of the book of Revelation, God makes this comment. Years later, he says, keep these sayings, seal not the sayings for the time is at hand. In other words, that now that we've got the completed revelation, it is easier for our age and those with a full, complete New Testament to understand. That makes perfect sense because we have more revelation. We understand more of the prophecy today than we did 150 years ago. There's little statements about that idea of the whole world shall see when all of a sudden the two prophets rise from the dead in Jerusalem. Years ago, people didn't understand how that's possible. You and I understand that you can be in the Capitol building, yeah, and you could be removing something and your picture's going to be posted really, really quick. They see right up to speed everything that can be done worldwide, yes? We didn't, for years, people didn't understand. How could there be a mark of the beast? You and I understand in a modern day that without having cash, you know, that could work pretty slick, could it not? Having some type of an implant could be something that would be very easy to do. We're living in a more modern time that all of a sudden a lot of this makes a whole lot more sense. So with that in mind, we should be studying it because we have a better understanding. We see what's going on. To help you in your understanding, let me give you some practical tips. When it comes to prophecy, the problem with studying prophecy is some of you are struggling with it. Some of you are intimidated by it because of the fact that the prophecy, there's false prophets there. There's the idea of symbolism. There's the idea of all kinds of different, different floating concepts about it. Keep this in mind. When you are reading the Bible, come with a literal approach. A literal approach is like you do other literature, like you do anything else that you read, you understand that if the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. You're reading it and just saying, okay, when Jesus says, I am the door, what does that mean? What's the common sense? He doesn't have hinges on this side and a knob on that side. It just means 
You were supposed to answer this and, you know, and encourage me that you understood. The entryway. He's just the entryway. Okay, that's all it means. When Jesus says he's the bread of life, we, not, we know that he's not a loaf stuck in an oven. What he is is he's the nourishment. He's the sustenance. That's the plain sense. And you do that with other things. You other literature that uses symbolism, that uses allegories and similes. And so we do that. We look and say, <clears throat> the Bible's filled with them. When it talks about, you know, different concepts, we just read it normally. And we understand, and we don't read anything more into it or anything less into it. So read with a literal aspect. When he's giving us numbers, read them literally. When he's giving us and saying there's going to be seven years of the tribute at the end of the world, and he says there are 1,260 days divided into two. Seven years, 1,260 days, 1,260 days, or 42 months, or 42 months. You put it all together, and it's the same time, just, okay, it's seven years. It's three and a half years, divide, you know, and each one, one time this with 42 months, and one time this with 42 months. It just read it normally. Something else. Remember, the best commentary on scriptures is the scriptures. Okay? And you understand, you compare scriptures with scriptures, as well you understand that Bible revelation was given progressively. That God was building up. Just like when you're teaching your kids. You build them up progressively. You, you give them concepts. Some concepts you don't give to your kids when they're real little. You build up on them. And so God did that throughout history. He just built one, one prophetic message upon another, upon another, upon another. And it's not that complicated. And so when we read it, we have to remember this. And this is for us here right now. we got to not get hung up on the United States in prophecy. We have to remember, it's not, the prophecies aren't about us. We're just very, I'm, I'm going to pick on us just in general. Americans are very arrogant about America. And I'm glad to be an American. Don't get me wrong. I'm extremely glad that I'm born at this time in this age and in this country and not in some third world country. I'm thankful for that. But we get the idea that the whole world revolves. Right. The scripture's prophecy doesn't. It doesn't revolve around the USA. It revolves around Israel. Okay. And so when we're reading, keep that in mind. The nation of Israel and the church are two separate entities. Though the Jews who are getting saved today are part of the church. There's no difference between Jew and the Greek, male, female, rich, poor. Okay. We know that in this age that all believers who are born again are part of the church age. There was prophecies given that were just to Israel. The prophecies were that were given about the land, the king, those that type of thing. So, so some of it we're going to be grafted into and enjoy, but some of those specific kingdom prophecies, they're for Israel. And they're for the Jews. And so we have to remember not, you know, we sing the song, every promise of the book is mine. Theologically, that's really not true. Okay. And so we have to remember and look at who is he speaking to in these prophecies. Read contextually, which you would do in any passage of Scripture, which means, okay, what was the setting of what was going on? Who are they writing to? Who is saying this? That's what you would do in any passage of Scripture, if you're going to understand it right. You have to know who's, who's talking to who and what are they saying and what they mean and what's the setting. And so that's all important. But let's move on for the sake of our study. The one element that we must have is when we're studying prophecy like everything else, Holy Spirit, guide me. The Spirit of God, when he comes, Jesus predicted, he will guide you into all truth. Okay, so we need the guidance of the Spirit of God. So we can understand it. That's great. That's where we want to be. Number three, why should we take the time to do the study? God commanded us to study his word. God told us to study his word. 
Let's go back to the, that, that passage that we often bring up. Study to show thyself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of God. The word study has the idea of really work hard at this. Give yourself completely to rightly dividing, accurately cutting straight. It's a, it's a term that was used for Paul's part-time business when he was a tent maker, and they would cut, they'd put down you know, where they need to cut on the seam. Whatever, cut straightly the word of God. And so we're supposed to really give diligence to that. Again, give attendance. Be absorbed. Be devoted to the idea of reading exhortation to the doctrine. Where Jesus said, teach them all things which I have commanded you to observe them. That included even some of those parables that talk about future events. Being very faithful because of the rewards that will come about. So we're commanded to be doing this. Number four. This is a challenging thought if you think this through. According to Hebrews chapter 6. According to Hebrews 6, he describes the idea of future events in, in prophecy. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to maturity, more full, richer understanding, not laying again the foundation of repentance, of faith towards God, of doctrine of baptism, of the laying on of hands, which are the first doctrines we need to understand of getting born again. They're the foundational doctrines. They're the very beginning ones. And then he concludes with that, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This idea of prophecy, knowing where you're going to be, that idea of being resurrected, of of the great white throne judgment, that's a foundational doctrine. And he's saying we want to build more in your life. You want to grow more. Well, if you don't have a good foundation, what happens? You can't grow. You're going to have, you're going to have a weakness there. I, I look back at my family when we were in school. When I was in high school, we transitioned to a different type of a total school system. And one of my brothers was, when we did that, was in the third and fourth grade. Well, the school that we went to and the curriculum they were doing, they decided that they would not do an emphasis upon learning to multiply, learning to divide. And so my younger brother never learned his multiplication tables well. Do you think that he suffered with his math in the years after that? Oh, yeah. Then so he didn't get a good foundation. If you don't have a good foundation on understanding future events, it's going to limit how much you're growing in your knowledge of the Bible. I, I think this is, a fu- this is a challenging thought for all of us. Let, let's go a little bit further, okay? We must learn it early. We must understand if we're going to build on it. And so if we don't know future events, we're limited. Number five, prophecy provides us an incentive for personal godliness. Here, l- let me, before I even share anything beyond this, let me ask you a couple questions. Any of you men, when you're taking your car in, you know inspection is due. What do you do? Do you just call up or do you, do you ever go, anybody go over their car? Okay. Do you check out the car? What do you check out? Brakes, wipers. You, you check out the basics, right? They're going to do that. That's why you're getting it inspected. Why do you do it? Because you're like me, you're cheap. Okay, Yes? Yeah, I can do that just as well as them, and it saves me a lot of money. But I prepare for that. Okay, you kids, some of you young people, okay, you have a test. Joseph, you're in the room. Help me out here. If you have a test, do you study for it? Yes? Yeah, if mom and dad make you do it, right? Okay. Okay, why do you study for it? 
Why did any, well, some of you didn't. It's obvious you have no, okay. Why did we study for the test? You want to, okay, let me, let me, let's take us up to it. age 16. What is the big life event at 16? Did you, did your, did your parents, did you help your kids prepare for the driver's exam? Did you? Besides fasting and praying, okay, what did you do to help the kids prepare? What's that? Did you let them drive? Okay. Did you, did you put cones out there and have them park? I mean, way, way ways away from anything that could damage the car. But you're getting them ready for it because there's a test that's coming up. Somebody's coming to your house. They're going to come. You've invited them over, just, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing with social distancing. You said, come on over. What do you ladies usually do when company's coming? You have food. Okay, you get food ready. Do you clean the house? You go, hey, Neil's been here. I've got to clean this house before we have company, right? Okay, we get ready for those types of things. Take that simple truth and watch what he says here. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness. He's talking to people that, that are really clinging on to the things of this world, and he's saying, let go of it. Let go of it. He goes on, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall become like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he makes a statement. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. In other words, if we're going to stand before Jesus Christ, we want to get, be clean, get ready, be prepared for that coming, that coming time. And so this hope that's within us presumes we understand and we know. And so here, here's some, some practical. I know I'm going to stand before you on a Sunday, Lord willing. And so that motivates what I do during the week. It strongly affects what I do in preparation because I'm going to have to give an account to you. And some of you are going to go, okay, so I study harder, okay? And so we we do that on a normal basis. I already asked you all these different questions with that idea that, hey, we're getting ready. We're preparing for it. And he's saying that's what happens if we understand the idea that Jesus is coming back, and I have a concept of that, and I know what the Bible teaches. It's going to impact my life so that I can be prepared to hear, well done, the good and faithful servant. So it makes an impact. Number six, without studying the idea of what the future holds, you're going to be limited in comforting people. It says in the Bible that when we understand future events, I'll I'll give you the one passage. Jesus is talking to the disciples in John chapter 14. And he starts off, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. And then what does he start describing? In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may be also. Okay. And he's telling them, don't be upset, don't be upset. And in helping them to get over the idea that he's leaving. They're... they're, person that they were hanging on to the most for the last two and a half years, he's going to be gone. He's giving them hope and confidence and comfort by talking about the future. So we go flip over to First Thessalonians chapter 4. 
where he talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says there's going to be the voice of the archangel. It's going to be the trump. And then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, he ends up that passage, wherefore comfort one another with these words. He's giving them future truth. He's giving them details of what's going to happen. He says, use this to comfort one another. I don't know about you. I find it extremely comforting that saying, you know, when my mom died last year, it was extremely comforting to say, I'll see you later. You know, we're going to be together. I find it extremely helpful at times to sit down with people who are losing loved ones and hearing them say, I know I'm going to see him again. We're going to be regathered. And Christ is going to be the focal point, but from our limited idea, knowing that we're going to be with loved ones in the future. It's consoling. It's comforting. It's helpful. And so he tells us that focusing on future events and what Christ has planned for us is very helpful to get to some of the biggest problems and trials. And in fact, let me put it this way. Some of you in the battles of going through this past year, 2021, uh, 2020, excuse me, not, not to scare you even more. Okay, 2020, okay, what has been a comforting thought? This too shall pass, okay? We know that this is only temporary. Feels like forever right now, but it's temporary. And so, by the way, let me make this point, that you and I need to follow the Holy Spirit's example and Christ's example. Use future truth to help people out. Now, you have to just not throw it out there and, and be you know, calloused about it. But with grace, Jesus, by the way, when he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, do you remember when he's there? And Mary and Martha, what are they doing? They're crying, they're weeping. Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man were dead, if he, dead, if he believes in me, he shall live. And then he gives that whole, that whole concept of the resurrection and provides comfort for them. And so it's very, very important we share the same type of truth. Number seven, a study of future events provides incentives for Christian service. First Corinthians chapter 15. In First Corinthians 15, there we have it. We're going to be back in Revelation 1, but if you want to just channel over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this whole passage is just a phenomenal passage, and it's all about the resurrection, and he's giving all kinds of information about But as he's winding down, he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, I find it very, very interesting, that he's talking about verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality and then he talks about oh death where is thy sting oh grave where is thy victory but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore Therefore, after he's given all that doctrinal information about the resurrection included in that, that idea of our rapture when, when that happens and we're resurrected, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Where does he base this incentive from? Knowing that you're going to be standing before the Lord one day. 
resurrected, raptured, and then there's the Bema Seat judgment that's going to come after that. And so he uses it. And then as, in, as far as in 1 Corinthians where he talks about it, or 2 Corinthians 5, he makes this comment after, after he says we're going to receive in our body things that were done that were good or that were bad. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's all kinds of debate, all kinds of discussion amongst commentators about what does this mean, knowing the terror of the Lord. One of the simplest explanations is knowing that God is going to judge. What should that cause us to do? Convince people of the gospel. Share with them that we know that God's going to reward, that God's going to expect from us to give an account of what we've done for service. Therefore, that motivates us to say, hey, let's listen, let's persuade, which moves us into number eight. A study of the future events will help you in your witnessing. Not only will give you incentive for witnessing. I mean, think about it. If we really, 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 really understand that we could be taken to heaven at any moment, how long would we wait to talk to our friends and relatives about the gospel? Shouldn't we be doing it yesterday? Okay, there's an incentive there. There's a challenge there. But also, remember in Acts 17, Paul is preaching at, at the Athens Hills to the Athenians, and he uses his knowledge of future events to challenge them to be born again. He talks about this unknown God is going to judge you one day, and you're going to have to give an account. So understanding damnation and what hell is like, that can be a tool for witnessing, can it not? When you tell somebody what their future holds and what the Bible is, there are some people that that's effective witnessing to them, that they will get motivated to get born again because otherwise they're going to end up in damnation and in hell. Okay, and so other people, you can share with them the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that compassion extended to them can be the motivation. How God uses that in different peoples, that's, that's his business. But God saying, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is within you. Somebody comes up to you and says, how do you know? How can you handle COVID? How is it that you're, you're doing so well? Well, I know this is going to pass. I know that no matter what happens, God is in control. And God has a plan. God has a plan. He doesn't... God has a plan and it doesn't make any difference who we elect into the White House. God is going to achieve his plan. doesn't mean we should be calloused about it and lazy about it, but God is in control. Okay? You do believe that, don't you? Okay? That, it's, that God still has a plan for this age, that God is the one who's in charge, not the president. It's God. And God has a plan, and he might be maneuvering and manipulating things to work out to whether we get into the tribulation sooner or later. God has a plan. He has a design. God is in control. And you and I getting upset and getting all you know, frustrated about the current political events, though we should be concerned, and we should be praying about them, and we should voice our opinions as Americans, but as Christian citizens, where our higher duty and loyalty belongs we're going to say this thought, you know, God is in control. And I still have a hope. I have a confidence that my God is in control. Well, where do you get that from? How do you know that? How, how can you have a peacefulness in the midst of election chaos? What's the hope that's within me? Jesus Christ is on the throne. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ has a plan. Jesus Christ is coming back. We're going to be in heaven one day. I'm not going to have to be voting. Jesus is going to be ruling. 
And he says, tell me about that hope. Well, you won't be able to tell if you don't have a knowledge of that hope and what the future holds. Let's give you another thought here, okay? Let's jump into number nine. The study of future events will help you in many other ways. I didn't know how to answer this one or explain it than taking you to a very familiar passage of Scripture that we looked at this morning. All Scripture is given by inspiration, literally God-breathed. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped. He may be able to serve That's the idea of what we have in the English perfect. Then he repeats the same word with emphasis by adding a secondary word to it. Thoroughly or thoroughly furnished. Same word, but he's equipped. I mean he's really equipped through the inspiration of the word of God. God has given you the word of God so that you are able, you have the tools to do what? To be equipped to minister to people. Not just equipped, but really equipped. Well, if you don't take advantage of the inspiration of the scriptures, you don't study, you don't have all these tools, the equipment that God has laid at you to do what? To comfort others? To provide wisdom and knowledge and teaching others? And looking and saying, hey, wait a minute, I need to determine in my life, I need to be equipped through the Word of God of making decisions of what is priority. What, what are the most important things in life? That's part of being equipped. Being able to answer that question. Knowing what's going to go with you. What's going what's to be left behind. That's going to help you to make priority decisions accurately. To be able to answer the questions that your kids or your friends will say, you know, what's going to happen after I die? What's going to happen to this? And you can give them information. You can explain how that God is going to do this in the future and do this in the future. And you have, you have the ability to be equipped through the Word of God, to be able to teach, to be charitable, to be able to invest your money. How, do you, how does that come about from the Word of God? You are equipped to make wise investments because you'll know what is going to be an eternal investment. It's amazing how God has given us all this information to help us to make life decisions week in and week out. So he expects us to study it. There, there's another thought that we want to share with you. I think this, it'll increase your appreciation for God. When we do a study like this, it'll increase your appreciation for God. Uh, By that, I I would go back to Isaiah. I am the God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Talking about the things that are not yet done. My counsel shall stand, I will do my pleasure, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. We talked about this morning how God predicts. Knowing that God can create, or God can predict and create all of that to come to pass, that is very reassuring, to me anyway. I hope, I hope to you too. But when we look and say, okay, knowing that God has graciously forgiven me of my sins, and knowing this, this is, a, this is a future, a future prediction. Your sins and your iniquities will I remember. Doesn't that encourage your heart? And appreciate that God's not going to add judgment. God's not going to bring up the things that we've already gotten under the blood. Doesn't, doesn't that help you? Yes, no? Okay. To just say, wow, that is... So, you know, I grew up in an idea that we're going to give an account for everything. Everything. You know, and we may end up in purgatory. 
for a number of years paying for some of those things. And then to hear the Bible say there is no purgatory. That believers who go to heaven are not going to have to give account for their sins. It's under the blood of Jesus Christ and as far as the east is from the west, he's put them far from us. Oh man, what a thought. What a glorious truth. Then I need to understand what is the Bema seat about? What is the judgment of Christians? Am I judged for sins that I have committed? And it's very important to get this doctrine straight. And when I understand it, I go, wow, God is amazing. God is wonderful. God is great. God is merciful. God is so, he, he is absolutely awesome. Well, take and go to the book of Revelation with me where we have in Revelation chapter 1. When I read Revelation chapter 1, I started with verses 1, 2, and 3, and then we shifted. John saying, hello, I'm writing you, and he talks to the seven churches. Who did he focus on through the bulk of what we read? Who is he describing? Verses you know, 5 all the way down through 18. Who is the character he was describing more than anything else in this chapter? Jesus Christ. He's telling us, what is Jesus like? And he talks about Jesus in this entire passage. He talks about his authority. He talks about his appearance. He talks about what Jesus is busy doing. And if we just look at those, and, and, and we could dissect them at depth, but just for the sake of time, let me just highlight. When he talks in this text about Jesus, and he starts describing, he gives us little phrases about Jesus. And he says, watch all these little phrases about his authority. I'm the beginning and the end. That would be understood by the writers. He's in charge. He has ultimate authority. The idea where he says, Jesus says, I am the Lord, the almighty God. He says, I'm the, calls himself the prince, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Watch this. He has authority to make us kings and priests, to appoint us. He has the authority that when he arrives, all nations of the earth, they shall, when they see him, there's going to be a dread upon them because he's coming with that great authority. It says in verse 13, he is like the one, like the son of man, which takes us all the way back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel talks about the son of man, the one who is going to rule and reign over all the earth. That's the Daniel term for the future king of the world. He talks about his authority in these passages. He holds the seven stars in his hand. Debate over who the stars are. Are they people or are they creation? Whoever they are, they're in his hand. He's in control. He talks about his authority when Paul or John sees him. He falls down before him just absolutely excuse the phrase, blown away by the fact that this one is so great, so amazing. He has the keys of hell and death. You understand that that's power. He has the authority to say to John, you do this, you've got to do it, write it down. That's his authority. But then he talks about his appearance. Look at all these phrases about his appearance. When John is writing, he can't even describe them. He says he's like or he's asked because it's beyond his comprehension and his wording. His clothing, the long robe, the golden sash, very similar to the high priest's clothing. By the way, no surprise, because Jesus is the great high priest. He goes on, he talks about his hair. Okay, It's white like wool. Well, in the Bible, that white would give the idea of purity, wisdom, that which would which be magnified. Daniel, he said, talks about the ancient of days, God on the throne being the same thing. His eyes, that idea of a flame of fire, that piercing, consuming, the idea of just knowing right to the heart that he's the judge. His feet, bronze like the glowing furnace, um, no impurities, pure metals, similar to that, sacrifice, that sacrificial system where nothing impure was to be brought. Uh, his voice, 
When you think about the voice of many waters, do you know what he means by that? He had a voice like many waters. What does that mean? Oh, it's loud. Any of you go to Niagara Falls? Yes, no? You ever been there? You ever been under the, under the falls? What do you hear? All you hear is this. You know, I can't even do it. Okay, I got, I got the water. <laughs> okay, it's just, this, it's just this overwhelming noise. His voice like the many waters as a trumpet, which would say, hey, listen to me. I'm speaking just powerful. He goes on, he says, his hands and the seven stars. The, the understanding is this could be the seven stars being the seven um, representatives, leaders of the churches, that he's in control of the churches is some of the discussion. The owner and controller, his mouth, there's the sharp two-edged sword, which implies judgment, implies victory, Okay, the word that's used there talks about the, the, the battle sword that's used in the Roman army. That idea that this, this one, he's coming as a victor. He's coming as one who is, you know, let's give the contrast. He's not coming as a weak baby in a manger, in humility. What's he coming? Power, glory, authority, strength. And then he talks about his face like the sun that is shining, radiant and brilliant. Jesus isn't this small, this small infant anymore. Jesus is pictured in heaven as this one who is, wow. He's, he's in charge. He's the one. Then he talks in this text about his activities. Just three phrases that he talks about. He talks about him redeeming. He says in the phrase, the firstborn of the dead who loves us has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kingdom of priests. His redemption work. That he is the one that is providing the forgiveness. Here he is, like none other, Jesus in heaven. He's doing that work. Then he talks about his returning. He talks about, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. So he's giving this picture of Christ that when the world sees him, the world's going to tremble. He hasn't given up on creation. He's coming back and coming soon is this whole idea. And men, when they realize they have to deal with him, they're going to fall down with dread and fear. And even the apostle, when the apostle saw him in this greatness, how did he respond? He fell down. He fell down. By the way, there's one other aspect of his activity, the idea of rewarding. He's going to make us kings we're already priests, but he's going to give out rewards for our service. The well done, thou good and faithful, given authority over the different multiple cities in that parable. And so Jesus is coming, described in this passage as being so amazing, so awesome. And John's basically saying, I fell down as dead. Why is that? He's humbled. Why is that? He lost strength in front of this person. Why is this? He realizes who he is, what he is before God Almighty. Why is it? He's overcome by the majestic majesty of Jesus. Why is it? He's worshiping him. When he got a better understanding of the future, John's heart was moved to worship Christ, the one that he had laid his head upon his breast at the Last Supper. John was just amazed at the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. May I suggest that as we embark on this study, that with all of these benefits that are there, that you would strive to do these two things. That as we do this study in the next few weeks, do this. 
that you pray, God, let me see you better each day. Help me to understand you a little bit better. Help me to understand your greatness, your authority, your majesty. When I see how you are going to bring this into play and you're going to move this nation and you're going to, you're going to manipulate this as you predicted, help me to be overwhelmed by your sovereignty, your power, your control. And don't let me panic when I have car problems. When the fridge goes out or the dishwasher washes my entire floor. Help me to understand these things are so minor. These problems are so insignificant compared to who you are and what you can do. Help me not to fret. And help me not to get so discouraged over what the government may do when I realize how amazing you are. Help me not. God, help me not as I see you better. Help me not to say, I can get away with this. I can get away with that. It's no big deal. But help me to see how holy you are. What type of a judge you are. How you hate sin. How you don't want it in the world. You don't want it in my life. That you purify. Help me to get a glimpse of this. Help me to understand how you love souls so much that you're going to judge them, but you want them to hear so much so that you send 144 prophets <coughs> that you that cough drop went down wrong <coughs> that you send the prophets and then you send the angels to witness that you love them so much and want them born again help me to get a glimpse of that so that I would seek there to be born again help me God then to serve you to serve you better as I get to see you better to serve you better than what I've done in the past Father I pray Please help us to get a glimpse of this truth and then to make it practical to our hearts. Thank you for the attentiveness of these good folk. And next week as we embark into this study, now that the foundation is laid, help us to glean much. Help us to be open to much and to grow in our faith and in our striving of serving you. Help us to think this week about how great, how amazing you are. And thank you. Thank you, thank you for these folk and their attentiveness. Bless our fellowship now in these next moments. In Jesus' name I pray. <coughs> thank you for saying it, okay? Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you the next time as we do the Bible study. God bless you.